Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast. It's my pleasure to have Mike Sutton, who's the manager of research and innovation of Forestry Corporation in New South Wales. It's a mouthful, but super excited that Mike has agreed to join the pod, the show, because I think at the end of this one, you'll agree, man, this guy's got a broad base of experience. He's been innovating stuff we've been doing here, thinking we're blazing the trail. You know, you head down under to see Mike in Australia. They're already doing things and experimenting. So uh, pleasure to have you on, Mike. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks, Kevin. It's uh, it, it's a great idea, this podcast. And yeah. uh, I'm really looking forward to just having a, having a chat to you about yeah. some of the things. That yeah, I've absolutely. So I, was, I before we started... Uh, the show for our listeners. I just finished playing a hockey game, so I'm trying to like cool down. I think I did one of those uh, Apple iWatch breathing things for two minutes to try and cool down. And it said, yeah, your heart rate's about 105 beats per minute. I'm like, All right, I need to get that further down to 85. So I'm wearing my uh, football jersey to try and cool myself down, although it's the Canadian Football League, so not not like the, uh, the National Football League. But um, Mike, so maybe start us off. Where are you based right now? <laughs> Right now, I'm actually based at home in Sydney because we're in uh, week 15 of, of lockdown thanks to COVID. Wow. But, um, yeah, so, so normally I'm based in, in Sydney in, uh, in New South Wales. But, uh, yes, yeah, been operating from the home office for a while now, which is a bit frustrating because uh, it's a bit limiting. But thanks to, <laughs> thanks to technology like this, at least we can, we can continue with, with some of the discussions. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So for our listeners who may be wondering which Sydney, if there's actually more than Sydney, I guess Canadians could be thinking Sydney, like out East, but no, this is Sydney, Australia. So with the oh, magic yeah, yeah. of technology, we're able to do this, which I, I still find mind blowing. Right. And, and what time is it on your end right now? Uh, it's just gone 10 a.m. 10 a.m. All right. So it's gone 8 p.m. on a Sunday for me. So obviously you're a day ahead. You'll be drinking coffee. I'll be drinking water to try and again cool myself <laughs> yes, I, down. I, I, I have my coffee here. So. There you go. There you go. So, and, so to start things off, Mike, maybe I always ask people, how did you get into forestry? What's that? What's that story? Is there like, uh, you know, parents were involved with it or, or maybe for our listeners, share us how you got was, into it. It was, um, it was one of those things where, you know, I finished year 12 at high school and I was sort of thinking, oh, I really don't know what to do. <laughs> and uh, so I had I actually had a gap year and um, I was uh, sort of the thing that attracted me to forestry was sort of that mixture of, of science and, and rigour and, and sort of the, the outdoors and growing is I've always, always liked growing things. And um, I actually, uh, the next door neighbour to, to one of my aunts, uh, was in the in the forestry business in in South Australia where I grew up, and uh, she said, "Oh, come and talk to my neighbour, and you know he, he can tell you a bit about forestry." So I did, and because I I was having a gap year, um, I was lucky enough to to uh, get a job planting pine trees in the mid north of South Australia, and and uh, and sort of talked to the local forestry staff there, and sort of really enjoyed that. And then later in the in the year. Um, I got a, a, another job sort of in the southeast of South Australia, which is sort of, I guess, the, the, it's called the Green Triangle region in, in Australia, which is sort of a bit of a more of a hub for, for pine plantation forestry. And I got to see the resource and inventory side of things there, still, still just as sort of gap year employment. And on the, on the basis of that, that was back in the good old days when... Uh, the government was offering cadetships. So, so you could apply for a cadetship where you would get paid to actually study and then were bonded to work at the end of that course. So, so perhaps on the, on the basis of the fact that I'd had these two jobs in my gap year, I was successful in, in getting a, a cadetship, which was, I think it was, uh, if not the last, it was almost the last ones that were wow, was cool. offered by the government. So, yeah. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. When you say cadetship, the first thing that thinks go, jumps into my mind is like, is this like military cadets? But it sounds <laughs> well, like it's not. It, it, it's sort of like a, a it's a scholarship right. with um, so 
uh, a payment while I was while I was studying, and then uh, and then sort of my payback was to a commitment to work work for uh, what was the Woods and Forest Department in South Australia at the end of that. Okay. Okay. Very cool. So, is is most of your experience in Australia, or or you know, I've talked with some uh, uh, people on the show. They've kind of done the gallivant around the world and eventually come home. But but has most of uh, your career been in Australia? I I, uh, probably with compared to my peers, I I was a bit unusual in that. um, So I I went from my gap year into to study at um, uh, at the Australian National University in Canberra which is where the forest at that stage was the only place you could do a forestry degree in Australia. And uh, yeah, so, so unlike my, uh, my peers who sort of were doing the grand grand tour and traveling around, I actually got married when I was at uni. So I got, got married very young. And, and, and of course, because I was, was bonded to um, uh, with the, with the scholarship, then I, I started work straight after that. So, so my experience is, has um, my working experience has all been in Australia, cool. but I've sort of moved moved around. So I've, I've worked, as I say, started in the pine plantations in uh, in the Green Triangle of South Australia, but I've also um, worked in native forests in Victoria and here in New South Wales, Forestry Corporation has both native forest and pine plantations. So yeah. I've been yeah. working my way around, around the coast a bit. And I've yeah. been fortunate enough to to travel so being over to to uh, to bc and and uh, and also across to to fredericton on the east side yeah um, uh, which i think is where we last met wasn't it yeah was a, yeah. yeah and uh, so that's sort of given me the opportunity to, to it's always good to to meet people and, and talk to people who are working in different parts of the world but in terms yeah. of my work, working life it's it's all been in australia yeah no i've always loved meeting up with you it's just like the ideas and you're right i was trying to think before this call i was like was it melbourne when we had dinner or was it fredericton and yeah it was fredericton and uh i still uh I, I always love your talks i remember one where i think it was like you're introducing forestry corporation new south wales and it was like you know what, what is australia australia like and you had this slide and it was like this will kill you this will kill you this will kill you this will kill you and it was like the whole slide and i thought oh my god like why would I ever want to go out and do field work well, in Australia? Well, that, I was like, that was the Ramsoft one at Fredericton. Yes, and, yeah. And I was just going to give a, a sort of normal presentation. This is how we what we what we do in terms of our resource modeling and how we use Woodstock and other programs. And then they said, Oh, there's going to be some international, other international. Can you talk a bit about Australia? So I sort of yeah. threw this together at at, uh, at short notice, and I thought, well, that, that'll get people's attention. But yeah. the number of you can yeah, think things that can kill you in Australia. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure Australia tourism was not impressed with that that presentation when they looked at it. It's like, oh, who's going to come by and look at this? But yeah, it was cool. You guys have got bears that can eat you. At least that is that cold. is true. Relative, yeah, you know, death by venom or something, or this thing hanging from a tree versus this giant dharmus uh, <laughs> animal charging you. But yeah, so no, it's it's been totally cool. And I think normally when I see it, it's at the Forest Tech event down in Rotorua in New Zealand or, or Melbourne. So it's definitely been a, a long time. So thinking of your, your career, it's like, uh, was it always technology at the start or was it like boots on the ground, traditional yeah, work? Well, so, so I've always sort of worked in the inventory and the resource. So it was certainly early in my career. It was sort of the inventory and the resources side of things. And when, like, when I started, it was um, uh, field work was collecting data on paper forms and uh, um, you know we didn't even have PCs in the in the computer office and, and but but early on I sort of got interested with with one of my colleagues there in that inventory space um, my first exposure really to, to the technology was uh, the husky hunter field data entry unit which was like a small brick okay and it was ruggedized and uh, it was all programmed in basic and uh, basic. Uh, and uh, we we essentially just replicated what was on the paper forms out in the field but you could do all these cool things like you could validate data in the field and make sure that that uh, you hadn't put in a negative number or that the increment from the previous measurement made sense and things like that so that that was pretty new and i guess that that sort of got me interested i've always been being interested in technology and I guess trying to look ahead yeah. about 
how how we can apply it. But <clears throat> I guess the the main driver for me has always been about how can we use that technology to enable the field operations yeah. to be done you know, better, more efficiently, safer. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah. So and and um, and then sort of gradually as my my career developed, then um, sort of went from from also started looking at remote sensing. So that was sort of at this time when, so in, um, when I was in, in Mount Gambia in 1983, there was big bushfires uh, there um, called Ash Wednesday. And yeah. at, that, at that time, the sort of the post-fire assessment was still pretty much aerial photography, infrared aerial photography. But then sort of gradually sort of beyond that, we started getting, um, it was really not until I moved to, to Victoria that I started getting into the remote sensing side of things as well. And, cool. and uh, starting to access that technology too. Yeah, yeah. So out of curiosity, that brick you're saying back in the day, how, how much was it? I'm curious, I'm dying to know. Yeah, I can't remember, but yeah, fiendishly expensive. Like it yeah. was, yeah, it was, it was one of those. And um, their the selling point was that they were, they were really rugged, like you could, ads showed you could drive a car over the top and things like that. So it was, you know, it was quite, quite new. And I'm not even sure where the, where the technolo technology de developed and how, how we sort of got onto it. But um, yeah, so even then it was, was sort of trying, trying new things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah, so, so maybe for our listeners, Mike, um, bring, before we dive into some of the technology, because as, as our listeners are probably sensing, it's like you, you've seen a lot from early career, mid-career, uh, maturing career, if we call that per se, like you've seen a lot. So I'm interested to poke in and get your, your insights on that. But maybe for our listeners, um, introduce us to Forestry Corporation of New South Wales and, oh. and what they're doing. Um, you know, I, I took a look at the website to refresh my own memory. Pretty big uh, land that's been under management. You've got like, yeah. you know, forest management planning, operations, harvesting, you know, uh, timber sale, like the whole kit caboodle. But maybe for our listeners, describe to us uh, who, yeah, who yeah. forestry is. Yeah, so so Forest Corporation is is what's called a state state owned corporation. So it's a it's a government it's a government uh, in effect it's a government owned company. So we've we've got a board. Uh, we've got a couple of shareholders, which is sort of the Minister for Finance and the Treasurer in, in the government. But essentially, we, we sort of operate as, a, as our own entity. Uh, we manage 2.2 million hectares wow. uh, in, in New South Wales, uh, mostly sort of in the coastal strip. So um, if I'd done my research better, I could tell you what the area of, of New South Wales is, but I... Don't, don't have that at my fingertips, but I can tell you that. So our, our forest, the area that we manage, stretches from the Queensland border down to the Victorian border, and that's about a thousand kilometres. Wow! Um, so it's it's quite quite spread out, and so mo mostly focused in that coastal strip because that's the higher rainfall area. So we've got the Great Dividing Range runs down down that coastal um, uh, fringe, and so the forests are sort of concentrated between the coast and then up onto the onto the uh, Great Dividing Range, okay. which is nothing like a Great Dividing Range <laughs> or the Sierra Nevadas in, in North America, but um, we're proud of it. And then sort of on the other side out west, it's it's sort of um, flat, dry country, and we've got cypress pine and, and then on the on the River Murray redgum forest. So mo mostly, um, so 2.2 million hectares, about 2 million hectares of that is, is native forest, which is mostly eucalyptus. Okay. Um, and then we have about um, 250,000 hectares of pine plantation. Again, mostly radiata, but because of that, that latitudinal um, extent in the north of the state, which is getting up towards Queensland, where it's warmer and more humid, mm -hmm. um, we grow southern pine up there. Okay. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. And, and about 30,000 hectares of eucalypt plantation. Again, on that northern northern coastal area. Right, very cool. Um, the um, so you would have heard about the fires that we had in 2019 20 fire yes. season. So they had a they had a really big impact um, on on the state, and with about five and a half million hectares were burnt. Wow. Um, within Forestry Corporation, we lost twenty five percent of our 
our plantation resource, our pine wow. plantation resource. Wow, wow, so wow. huge, huge impact. And when you're talking about wood wood supply, that's a big, a big hole. Yeah. Uh, and and also um, impacted about 40, a bit more than 40% of our native forest. Uh, so I'm not sure whether the listeners are aware, but the uh, eucalypt forest. Uh, is fire is, has evolved adapted to fire so um, it has a number of, of mechanisms for for dealing with fire so some of our uh, what we call our ash species on the higher elevations they they uh, are prolific seeders after fire so they'll drop a lot of seed so that's yeah. their response they're, they're killed by fire and and some of the more coastal species um may not they might be damaged and burnt by the fire and they might have their crowns burnt but then we get um, a, a flush of, of epicormic growth so um, new growth coming up yep. out of the stem up up the up the bowl but there's issues there in terms of um you know damage damage to the wood and, and in some yeah. areas and it was you know the, the intensity was so much that the the, the even the eucalypts were killed yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be interesting um, as we as we talk. I'm curious to to pick your brain. Uh, you know, because you know, in Canada, BC, we had crazy fires there, and yeah, it just yeah. seems like every year now it's like fire, 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 fire. And like no matter where you are, like Greece or I don't even know if Spain's on fire right now. But uh, we'll we'll uh, get your thoughts on that. Uh, so so let me we start you start talking about aerial photography so this is a digital forester podcast it's supposed to like tease out how how people are using technology i'm i'm curious i i'm just curious to know right off the bat i guess from when you started your career to where you are now what 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 was the is there a crossroad where you know the intersection of technology and people and forestry that is just a vivid turning point that you're like wow it's like things the world has changed uh, for foresters in general or do you think we're still kind of just evolving or or or, yeah. or modernizing if that's the right word yeah that that, that that's real that's a real hard one um because you could come at it from a number of a number of ways so if we if we think at think of um what what technology has made the biggest impact it, i mean i guess it's got to be computing i mean when when like i said when i started we didn't have we didn't have um pcs um you know at, at we we had we had a computer center which was just sort of again <laughs> old older people in the know so it was an, a vax 11 750 and it was you know had the <laughs> 2400 foot tapes and you know some of our younger listeners will be like i have no idea what I this guy's what? talking about yeah, right. i don't know what this aussie's talking but, about but but in and I, you know, I often look back on not just my working career, but you know, my life, and just think, you know, in my lifetime. So, I'm happy to say I was born in 1958. So, in my lifetime, we've gone from having one satellite in space, Sputnik, to having however many we've yeah. got now, and and that that's just amazing to me. So, all the uh, so you, you've always got the benefits of the remote sensing side of things, but then all the technology that's needed to do, to support all that, and that's where all the, the computing side of it. And and now we're at the point where, you know, we, we've got a computer in our pocket. Yep. And um, and and certainly for for us, we've we've invested in in recent times. We've invested a lot in in um, mobile mapping. So taking taking all that spatial information, all that remote sensing data and provide putting it in people's hands in the field so that when they're actually collecting or, or you know, planning or operating or supervising harvesting, they've got all that information at their fingertips. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and can collect data, which is then synchronised back. So uh, where do you start? So, so I think computing generally... Well, that's, a, that's a good that's a good segue. Like, like, tell me more about uh, that in terms of your field operations. Because I, I actually have some questions. I remember I from two years ago I wanted to ask because I like, guess is like so cool <laughs> what Mike's working. I just never had the chance. Uh, so they're going to come. Uh, but when you talk about that, uh, maybe tell describe to our listeners like what type of technologies are you guys in Esri shop? Are you custom building? Yep, uh, yep. What type of techs yeah. you guys using? Yep. So yes, we are we are an Esri shop. So so we've been. Um, 
um, well, I, I probably should say that I, I've been with Forest Corporation for just over 10 years. So I, I had um, about 12 years in the Green Triangle. Um, I was overseas for a couple of years, uh, then 15 years in Victoria, as I mentioned in the Native Forest, and then, and then came up here about 10 years ago. So in, in that time, in that 10 years, um, uh, I've had the, the privilege, I guess, to, to manage a group of really smart people who one of the first things when, when I started, they said, we've got this idea about we wanted to, we wanted to develop a mobile, mobile application. I said, we're, we're at Esri Shop, so you, know, you look around and see, see what's out there. But because we were trying to, um, the, the, I guess, the, the business case for the mobile application was was for ecology surveys. So, so for our native forest planning, then we have to do ecology surveys to, to identify, you know, make sure the threatened species are accounted for. And, and um, you know, we've got mapped exclusion areas, but we've still got a survey, a potential harvest site to, to make sure that, you know, we've, we've covered, covered everything. Now, the, the, the problem with uh, ecology survey is it, it tends, it, it's, it's hierarchical. So, so, you know, you'll have, um, you go for a, at a particular site, you'll have a, or you have a, a, a survey for an area and then you have a number of sites. And within the number of sites, you'll have a, diff, a range of different ways you collect, whether it's plots or transects. And within each of those plots or transit, you've got to collect information about species. So you need to have this hierarchical linkage. None of the products on the market Okay. The, the mobile products actually actually captured that. So so we said, okay, well, can we develop it ourselves? So we started uh, developing what we call Map App um, in in um, 2011, 2012, uh, and um, it's, it's sort of it's we've just sort of built on it. And and when it first started, we had this ecology module we call them and and that's sort of we started off with about 12 modules and um, each of those were sort of code in their own right and mm -hmm. it's like got to be a bit of a uh, to, to make a change you had to change it at the module level we had it out once once it got out in the field then you know people coming back and saying oh we can use it for this can you do this can we have this so then there was demand for more and more modules so the so the next iteration, our version two of it, was to go from individual modules. So we've still got a range of modules, but but to have a configuration file that can actually say and determine what the what the legend looks like, what the fields right. are that you're going to capture. So so that gave us the capacity. So the, the module sort of grew from sort of twelve to thirty, probably. Wow. Um, and and we're now we're now just. Um, in the stage of, of starting to roll out version three, which we were sort of, uh, uh, the, the impetus for that was because the uh, ESRI SDK, so this, these are all um, on, just on, we've just done it for iOS. Okay. We, we deliberately, because we were developing it ourselves in-house, we thought if we go with iOS, you've got one operating system and two, two um, hardware formats, so the, yeah the phone and the tablet. Yeah. Whereas if you go Android, every manufacturer's got their own slight. Yeah, a fragmented ecosystem of Android, yeah. But, so that sort of kept it simpler for us. Um, but then the the iOS SDK from Esri was updated and we couldn't just recompile our old, old code. So we took the opportunity, um, it, was, it was back in, in 2019, we took the opportunity to, to do a, a refresh of the the UI UX as yep. well as as the, the design. So we've, we've the, when version three is sort of out and operating, it, it, it's uh, well we're now starting to use it. Yeah. It's um uh it's like uh, it's more contemporary sort of look looks more like the um the sort of the standard iOS uh, type interface. But, yeah. but the, what's underneath it is is still the same. The other thing that we did at the same time as we were sort of doing that development was that we made a conscious decision to move the back end. Um, so as I mentioned that it's it's a two-way process. So it not only um, displays information, but it's a way of capturing information in the field. A lot of 
uh, the sites that we operate on, which is probably the same in, in forestry around the world, a lot of them don't have cellular coverage. Yep. So, um, so we have um, a, a SQL light uh, database, database yep. And, yep. and then so everything can be cached when uh, when the information is captured in the field, and then we need to be able to, when we're back in in range to be able to synchronize that back with the with the geo database and in, in, in the uh, on the server. So one of the big the more as the usage grew. Um, and particularly as we started doing things like collecting track points from harvesting machines, mm -hmm. then the volume of data increased and the importance of, of always of reliability became, you know, became more important. So we actually moved from on-premise um, storage of the geo databases and the, and the services to, to AWS. AWS, okay. Uh, so it's all sitting in AWS now. Yeah, cool. That means that we've got much, much better reliability. And also you can do, do things, well, people who know how to do these things can do things like load balancing. And, and yep. so we can, we can spin up um, additional information, uh, additional servers if we need it, and we can load balance processes. Yeah, very cool, very cool. And for, and for our listeners, let's put this in context. Like, this is Mike working for a forestry company talking about UI UX, which is jargon from a technology company um, that you don't hear. And, and we're talking 2011 when this started. So, you know, this is 10 years back that, that these guys have been doing this stuff. So um, it's pretty, pretty early, truthfully. I, I'm curious, like for some of our listeners, they might be thinking like, holy cow, it's like, like how deep are the pockets of Forestry Corporation of NSW here? Like how big's the the development team to support this? Because it sounds like, you know, it's got traction. It's been running for almost a decade. V3 is coming out. There's more reinvestment in in, in updating the the code base and and whatnot. But like, maybe I'm curious to know how how big's the dev shop uh, that's supporting this? One, One. developer. One oh. developer. Um, oh. uh, and we we don't we don't have a, a business analyst. I've just got so so my uh, manager of, of my spatial systems team has he's conceptualized all this but yeah we've got one one developer we, we did get we did get some um, external help with the with the sdk uh, transition and the ui ux um, yep. design so we sort of we we uh, contracted that out but yep. um yeah so so the rest of it's just been done in in-house um so you know, I've got a pretty small spatial systems team. Of, it totals about, well, I think at the moment it's about twelve, um, and um, but you know they're doing a whole range of other other things as, as well. Right. But Very cool. The other the other thing that we've we've done to um, again because we couldn't quite get what we wanted um, off from the market uh, is we've also developed our our own content management system. Now, so so one of one of the things about version three of MapApp is it's all plan based. So every so, so you go to an area and you, and and you have a plan. What Plan Portal does is you can you can enter information into Plan Portal via a web interface, and you, you can define an area and and get all the spatial information. So Esri tile packs are the sort of the, the yep basic um, uh, file type that we display the spatial information on. So you can define your area in plan portal. You can automatically generate tile packs for your defined area out of out of um, either ArcMap or ArcGIS Pro. Yeah. And, but the other thing is that you can add any other documents. So for example, it might be a plan for harvesting operation. So there might be contractor induction information or there might be site safety plan or there might be for an ecology survey, there might be a, a species identification um, checklist. So all those documents and they can be PDFs um, can also be loaded into plan portal. Then when you go out into the field and you open up map app, you've got the option to say, Show me the plans that are in my where I am. So you've obviously got location services from from the iPad, and then you just select your plan and you say make that current plan, and then that synchronizes with the plan portal and brings all that information in. So you can open the tile packs in in Map App, 
but you can also view all the associated documents. And people working in the field can collect field notes, contractors can connect notes, collect yep. notes, and it all synchronizes back in through this, this content management system. Cool. Cool. Now, is and, that, yeah, oh, sorry. I'll, yeah. I'll just, just to finalize that, one part of the, um, one of the, the um, issues about operating in native forest is from a compliance point of view, then there's a reporting and, and a monitoring and a reporting requirement. So what we've, we've got in Plan Portal is we control access to various documents and maps by tags. So uh, Forest Corporation staff can see all the relevant documentation. Um, contractors can see their own documentation. So we've got a contractor tag. Um, our regulator is the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. So we've got an EPA tag. And nice. then uh, we, we've got a public tag. So if people want, you know, want to be able, they can, you can register for an account on, on it's just an email address on Plan Portal, and then you can see all the public access documents, which is like, this is our plan of operations maps, and this is all the, the survey results and whatever. So yeah, so is uh, Plan Portal Mike meant to be your 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 FMS, your forest management system, or is it purely a CMS and no, you got an FMS? Just, it's a we, we've got a we've got forest management system a sort of a whole separate process. So this is specifically okay. the CMS. Yep. Okay. And what, what FMS does uh, Forestry Corp uh, use on, on your side or custom or is it uh yeah, it's, yes, custom. Wow, so okay. Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. So it's 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 so neat to hear because again, that's why I love chatting with you every time because you guys are like blazing the trail and money friends trying different things. And, and so it's really fascinating. Curious to know because you're in Ezra shop and I know a lot of people I talk to, they're like with the new RGS enterprise and this isn't a, um, you know, a, a, a negative comment to Esri, but with all these users, that name user subscription model they're taking, how are you, are you guys using enterprise or are you still using server to, to bypass the need We're for the still name using users? server and, okay. and we have an enterprise. So we have a three year enterprise license agreement with, with Esri, which is, perfect for the AWS environment because as I said if we if we need to spin up additional servers then then we can you know it's, it's the, the cost of the arc server license is in, is covered by our, our um, enterprise agreement gotcha. uh, we do have we do have as part of that some name user access but because we um, uh, so map, map apps not a uh, externally available um, product. So it's some, a, some listeners, you know, are going like, ah, oh, damn it. It's like, well, well I, I, it, it's one of my things is to look at, is it, is it, um, th there is definitely interest and, and particularly more so since the fires um, in, in having a, like a commercially available version of it. And I know that various forest techs, people have come up to me and say, oh, that sounds great. Can we get it? And my response has always been, we're just a little forest, Forestry Group. We're not a software developing company. Yeah. Um, so it's it's there. It's just sort of finding the time to do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, well, that's the thing. They're, they're like once you release things public, you know, everyone's got their. I call it opinions on what should be there and should not be there, or how things should work. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if you've got one dev uh, on there, it can be challenging. So are we looking at looking at. Um, whether just within New South Wales agencies, where there's other government agencies that that are interested in, um, it's not not sort of a full commercial license, but sort of having a licensed access to it. We're, right. we're still a bit of a way off from that. Right, right. Well, I guess being a Crown Corp or owned by a Crown Corp, there's probably some mandates to to cross fertilize yeah. with other Crown Corps and state. Yeah, that's right. And, and yeah. particularly the, the fire, because uh, we had um, a Royal Commission and a, a state fire inquiry. Following the the uh, the big fires in 2019, 20, and and one of the things that came out of that is, well, how can we get better commonality with uh, across the various firefighting agencies? So. Yeah, very cool, very cool. So let me let me let me let me pivot us because I know our listeners are like, when are you going to ask him, Kev? When are you going to ask him? Tell me about lidar. What's Forestry Corporation of South Wales doing on that front? Um, again, that's sort of in, in my um, in my working lifetime, we've sort of gone from what's LIDAR to now it's sort of it's not only is it routine, we, we've, we've got um, 
mobile lidar. But um, I guess we we started again. I, I started in in twenty eleven, and around about that time, a little bit before, um, some other people in that uh, were in my group uh, had had looked at lidar. And I guess as a sort of government campaign. So originally, the, the first lidar we captured was in the west of the state, but we soon realised, of course, that um, the the forests on the, the coastal forests are, are characterised by their, their, their moist eucalyptus forests. So particularly on north of Sydney, so they have very dense dense canopies. Okay. And um, you know, we started off talking about aerial photography and. It's very hard to uh, interpret aerial photography where you've got a continuous cover of, of canopy. Yeah. Um, so we actually first started looking at LiDAR as a way to uh, get a, a good DTM because we wanted to model our stream network. Um, and uh, that proved very useful. Uh, and the reason that the stream network is important is that in our native forest operations, um, we can't. It's not a, a clear fell burn and so operation. It's it's uh, uh, what we call a single tree selection, but it's sort of varying varying intensities of single tree selection. But there's always areas that have to be protected, so rainforest, old growth forest, yep. but also streamside reserves. So from a planning point of view. It was really important to know where the streams actually were. <laughs> that little detail, and the, right? <laughs> and, for the, and for the field guys that are trying to mark up the area prior to harvest. And when when we eventually did get LIDAR and, and we sort of, um, uh, again, another clever person in my team had sort of um, looked at, at different stream modelling options and, and we'd sort of looked at that the uh, ESRI accumulated flow model and that didn't quite do it. So we ended up running with a... A process called GeoNet. Um, so we we developed these Geo, so what we call our GeoNet stream layer, and when you compared compared that with the the old topographic layer, which was was essentially from aerial photo interpretation, yeah, night and day, chalk and cheese. Like we had because uh, once, of course, once with lidar, you can penetrate the canopy, you get a good DTM, and then you can you can model the stream. So we, we started off by displaying the old topographic stream network information on top of the shaded relief from the LiDAR DTM. And we had streams going up and over ridges and, we had, <laughs> and, and you could see from the shaded relief where the gullies were and the, the, the mapped walkers were nowhere near it. So, so that, that was a, probably our first, first big big area and in, in LIDAR and we had the opportunity so there's a government um, agency that sort of does surveys and, okay. and um, they they were doing a big a big survey down the coastal strip to get um, a DTM to actually look at um, sea level rise from a climate change point of view yep. so so we had being another government agency where that um, overlap with with our state forest then then uh, we were able to get access to that information and there was some older stuff that was was from local councils and and uh, and then there was there was light that we captured ourselves now that was good but it also meant we had this real patchwork of different yes different uh, specifications um so you know the early lidar was was well the very early lidar was probably about half a pulse per square meter um, most of what we captured, we were we could get good DTM information with two pulses per square metre. Yeah, and of course now the you know twelve is sort of the minimum. Yeah, um, but so so originally it was it was really just about that DTM and the and the stream network. But but then um, we we got sort of looking also again through through the likes of Forest Tech um, looking at at um, plot imputation. And in fact, even though the plot imputation, a lot of the early plot imputation work was done by the likes of Interpine in, in New Zealand in yep. the pine, um, our LIDAR capture had been focused on the native forest because of this requirement for the, for the stream layer. So we actually were looking at, well, can we, can we develop an imputation for our um, native forest? Because it's very it's low intensity, but extensive as opposed to 
small area intensive management that you get in your pine forest. Yeah. Um, and uh, it certainly was an improvement. I mean, at least we could get a volume surface. Yeah. It was an area whereas our conventional inventory in native forest was about one plot per 250 hectares. Um, and then, you, you know, you're trying to do a, a rough stratification based on, you know, we've got, we've probably got 50 commercial eucalypt species on the, on the North coast. So you can't, and, and you can't, they, they all grow in associations. So you, you can't segregate out individual yeah. species. So we were really looking at sort of a, a mix. So, so Lido was good. And that was, I guess, the first time that we went, started going from, from plot level information to, to wall census. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as you described that, I can guarantee there's some listeners that are probably laughing, slapping their knee because they're like, that's exactly the experience I had in terms of, you know, it's all about the terrain first and like, you know, forget about the above vegetation. Then it's about floodplain mapping as a driver, the hydrology component. Then it's like that piecemeal of partnerships, who's got what and stuff. And then now it sounds like for everyone, it's just another tool in a forester's toolkit per se. You guys are big on drones too. So this is my the, a question that's been stewing since I, I don't know if it was Fredericton or Melbourne, but you guys were flying, I think, Phantoms, DJI Phantoms, Force Fire. And then if I remember correctly, there's something about you didn't like, you couldn't do something. So you got one of your guys to hack an X, was it an Xbox controller or something? You hacked something to override <laughs> some control. And I was like, this is like so cool. And then uh, uh, am I totally out to lunch and, and forgetting no, about no, that well, story? It wasn't, it wasn't a hack. We actually, so just, just go back a bit. So yes, we, we um, I, I started um, investigating the idea of, of drones back in 2017. Um, and Again, you know, so that that was the time when sort of drones were, were it was really a bit before DJIs were really on the market much, um, and uh, the uh, the EB, you know, the one with the polystyrene yep. wings and the little um, Canon sure shot camera in it. Now, at the, at the time, they were about they were over twenty thousand um, dollars, well over twenty thousand dollars. And I was sort of looking, looking at, at this and thinking, well, if we're getting it, if we're going to go have a drone program, we're managing two million hectares. There's not much point buying one drone because how would you decide? You know, do you have one person who travels around the state and does all the drone imagery? So, so I actually went off and got my remote pilot's license just so I could understand what what was involved and also look at and talk to some of the people in the business about what what the trends were. So we then made a conscious decision to, well, we started off by just doing a, a, a bit of a trial with 12, we trained up 12 pilots. So here in Australia, we've got something called CASA, so the Civil Civil Aviation Safety Authority. Okay. So they, they cover anything that goes in the air, including drones. Um, so there were all these requirements that we had to make sure that we complied with it, with, with CASA. So we, we trained up um, 12 12 pilots, remote pilots, um, and I tried to cover the geographic extent, the hardwoods and softwoods extent, and also different activities, so, you know, fire and planning. Now, with 12, you know, it was just a bit of a, it was really <laughs> just, a, is this something that we can we can use? And, and we made, as part of that, we made a conscious decision, well, we're going to go with the DJI consumer grade because, you know, we can buy a lot of DJI drones compared to you know, a, a single expensive drone. And, and my vision is that it becomes, um, it just becomes another tool available to field, field foresters. And you know, I said before, I'm, I'm keen to make sure that the, the investment and the development that we do in, in technology is something that is, can be applied. It's useful right. in the field. Yeah. So, um, so yes, we we sort of uh, and on the basis of that twelve, then we sort of grown and grown and grown, and so we've now got um, fifty trained pilots across the state. Fifty. Uh, five zero. Wow. Um, so I had I had to um, put on a, a a drone coordinator to help me manage that because it was soon became too much for me. Um, 
And so I think we've got about 60, 60 drones. Um, so in 20 locations and 20 of those drones are thermal capable. Okay. So mostly the Mavic Enterprise jewels, but we also do have two Matrice M210s with the high resolution thermal cameras. Okay, so mostly camera based, not not LiDAR or anything of that nature, it's mostly oh, no, for so fire. But so, you know, to, to come back to your question about the hack, <laughs> uh, wasn't a hack so much as um, I, I had this idea, I thought, well, we've got this, we've got map app and we can take our iPad out in the field and we can use the blue blue dot to tell, tell me where I am. Um, and wouldn't it be useful if we could actually use the drone location rather than the location service from the iPad? So um, again, I'm just lucky that I know clever people. Uh, so we um, got in touch with a developer actually in Adelaide in South Australia um, through, through the contacts that we had through our, our drone training program, actually. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I think I can, can do that. So, so we ended up with this piece of software that called D-Lock for drone location, which just essentially uses peer-to-peer -peer communication between the drone controller. So the drone controller's got obviously got information about the XYZ of the, of the drone in space. Yeah. And then we just use a peer-to-peer -peer connection to another iPad, or if you really want to, you can do it in split screen on one iPad. Um, which is running map app and then in the the our app develop map app developer just added in an external um, you could switch from uh, the internal uh, GPS to to the dlock location and then your blue dot changes to a nice little blue drone and uh, cool. so you can fly the drone around you can record point locations or lines or polygons yeah. in map app and, and capture it there. So with the, yeah, with the thermal cool. capability from a fire point of view, we can then, if we're doing mopping up post after a fire, we can fly, fly the edge, find the hotspots, map the actual location of the hotspot, synchronize that back uh, into AWS. And then that, and then if uh, people on the ground, if they're, if they're in online mode rather yeah. than offline, then they'll get that data synchronized back in and they can say, oh, well, that's where the, and then they can use their um, location servers in, in their iPad to, to navigate their way to where the hotspots are and put uh, the wet cool. stuff on the hotspot and the hotspot gone. Yeah, cool. And I remember that story. I just kind of like, that's like genius. Like, it's so cool. It's like practical. And I love it. You're like, oh, it's like, you know, utility. You're focused on making sure it's useful. And I remember that story going like, that's crazy cool. It's like awesome, awesome yeah. innovation there. So um, you know, we could chat forever. We haven't even talked about earth observation and I have like a bajillion other uh, questions yeah. there, but uh, maybe briefly tell us uh, what are you doing anything space using, um, you know, any uh, of the new uh, satellite technologies uh, out yep. there in your programs? Yep. So the thing that I'm, I'm working on at the moment and um, uh, started it just before COVID. So it's kind of mucked up the field, field evaluation of it. Um, when I mentioned before about the uh, operating, particularly in, in native forest, but also has has utility in, in plantations, is, is knowing where you are accurately in the forest. So I've got this thing in my head which says we really we would be really good to get sub canopy sub meter resolution okay. on our on our GPS units. <clears throat> so um, back in. I think it was 2018-ish, um, there was a, a program here in Australia and New Zealand uh, to investigate or, or, yeah, to investigate the, the business viability of an SBAS program. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, I know in the Northern Hemisphere, you've sort of had them for a while, but it, it was something new down here. And I, and I thought there's got to be a better way to get, to get this differential correction because again, location, yes, we've got ground-based um, uh, continuously operating reference stations, but you know, there's, they're few and far between out in the regions um, and connectivity is, is always an issue. So you know, what, what can we do 
So we actually, I got um, Forestry Corporation on as sort of, there was this um, SBAS test, test bed program that was conducted by um, uh, what we have here called um, cooperative research centres. So that's industry and universities. So we had a cooperative research centre for spatial information. Okay. And they, they were sort of tasked with doing this test bed analysis of, of SBAS. And there was, there was, I think, about 12 different themes, you know, marine and, and um, agriculture and mining and transport and rail. And, and so yeah. the, um, I, didn't, I, I sort of put our name forward to be the, the test bed for forestry in Australia. Um, so we, we got to do that, which gave us exposure to that SBAS, SBAS technology. Um, the, the trials that we did as part of that, we were using um, some prototype receivers and the, you know, they, had, they didn't perform particularly well in the forest. So the, the results were a, a bit, they weren't quite as good as that. If, Underwhelming. If if you're using satellite-based correction services in agriculture and mining, you've got nice, big, clear, open sky. Yeah. Forestry, that canopy gets in the way again. Um, so, so post that, we have sort of worked with with the group in Melbourne that was sort of bringing all this together and and uh, tried. Uh, we looked around to see what what other um, currently available. Um, devices were available so yeah. I actually tested the um, the geode receiver so it's a juniper systems one yeah um, which actually went quite well so so what we did was in we we surveyed so I did a total station survey in three different plantations so un, young unthinned old unthinned middle-aged thin plantations and two native forests um, uh, canopy type so it's a, a light to medium canopy and a heavier canopy so we had an accurate line and so we could we could walk with with these um devices and con connect uh, connect using the map app so we we adapted the map app so we could capture the nmea stream yep and then we could compare that with this with the survey transit so and this was while sbas was still operating but it's only it's only in a it was only in a test phase for this um, uh, for the test bed process, yeah. And it and it looked really promising. Then, of course, that service got turned off in July last year <laughs> because the trial was over. Now, the Australian government, Australian and New Zealand governments have committed to it, so we're we're going to be getting a system called South Pan, uh, which is really SBAS for Australia and New Zealand. Cool, but. You know, we're still in the process of calling for tenders, and you know, it's it's going to be a while before that becomes available. Yeah, yeah. So, so then the next thing that I did uh, was actually the last forest check that I was at in Melbourne, when we were able to travel. Um, I actually got to uh, uh, meet up with some people to talk about the the EOS receivers. So. Yep. Canadian company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just an hour and a half drive. You know, Jean yeah. either. Yeah, yeah. Know them well. Yep. So, um, uh, and again, at that stage, we were just we were still talking about SBAS. So it was really, is this a, a an, an how, how does this compare with the geode? So the geode sort of was a self-contained, ruggedized unit. Um, the the arrow units out of EOS had the external antenna. So you know, pros and cons. But, and we had. <clears throat> We'd, we'd had a chance to have a look at it and test it just in Melbourne. You know, they both we could pair both of them with our with our um, iPad and and get them to show as an external uh, GNSS unit in Mapper. Yeah. Um. It's like COVID, the combination of COVID and the SBAS signal disappearing sort of uh, caused me some grief. Um, but then talking with the with the EOS guys, I said, oh well, we have got. Um, a version. We, we all agreed that the best the best option for us was going to be the the Arrow One Hundred with SBAS. But because yeah. we didn't have SBAS, what do we do? In the meantime, we're getting increasing pressure from a compliance point of view to be able to show that right. our because our harvesting contractors have our our map app running on an iPad, but it's only using the internal location service. Yeah. So you know that. That that's actually pretty good for under forest canopy, but it's sort of five to ten meters probably. Yep. 
you know, I really want to get down to this meter or better. Yeah. Um, so EOS have um, uh, a different model. So their Arrow Gold, which um, uses the Atlas subscription service for, yep. for the, the correction service. So again, very happy with the with the support we've been getting from EOS in Canada and and here in in Australia. Uh, so we've we've been able to uh, test test that sort of as an interim because we know SPAS is coming. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's just we don't we don't know when it's coming, and this way um, we thought like okay, well even though it might not be quite as good as the Arrow One Hundred. By having the Arrow Gold plus the Atlas subscription, we can at least put it in a harvesting machine, try the location of the external antenna, see yep. how we go pairing it to the to the iPad and to Map App. So we've actually been doing that just literally only the last last few months. Yeah, yeah, very cool, very cool. Uh, and today or tomorrow, I'm expecting um, one of the. I think there were three pre-production units produced of the Arrow 100 Plus. Okay. Um, which has both SBAS and Atlas. Nice. So we're going to test that. And then, of course, that'll be great because then we could use it with Atlas until SBAS is available and then switch yep. over. And then to just go over. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very cool. It's absolutely uh, fascinating stuff. And, and for like a lot of uh, our listeners on North America, like we're spoiled because we have those SBAS corrections. And even, uh, yeah. You know, as I, I talk to folks in Latin America, they're like, we don't have that. It's like, yeah. you know, with Atlas, you got to be able to see it, right? They're there uh, yeah. to get the correction. And for our listeners, this is the differential corrections for the position to remove some of the drift, other errors, if you will. So you can uh, get that uh, XYZ down a little bit tighter. So yeah, definitely a treat. So, so I know we're approaching, we're already at our hour mark and I'm like, I can talk to Mike for like another hour per se, but you know, as we, and I'm sure there'll be other opportunities to follow up, but as we wind out, I'm just curious. I always ask people on the pod, what's what gets them excited in the next year, three year, ten year time frame? And guaranteed, our listeners are like, like, and I'll say it, like, you're you're always. Uh, I've loved chatting with you, meeting with you, because you're you're always so humble. It's like, oh, you know, I've got all these smart people. I've got this, this, and then if you listen carefully, it's like, oh, I got my own uh, RPAS pilot certificate. I did this and like certified in this, and, and so you're always just so like, how you like you're a good Canadian, I guess per se. But uh, thinking of one year time frame, three year time frame, ten year, you're the manager of innovation uh, and research. Clearly, everyone listening can probably understand why. Uh, lots of great ideas. You know, it's clear you've got you know that thought, technical leadership, some vision on where you see the world going. But what's what gets you? Uh, maybe break it down. One, three, ten. What's what's uh, what gets you excited in that one year time frame to start? Yeah, I, I think the most exciting thing we're on the cusp of, and it's probably between the one and the three. But um, so I mentioned before the idea of going from plot plot-based inventory to, to having a, you know, a whole coverage through imputation. I think we're, we are not far from getting to tree-level information. Um, so as, as LiDAR technology improves and becomes more affordable and, and becomes um, more ground-based, so you've got units like Hovermap, so you can walk around and... and and get a really good um, uh, point cloud, really dense point cloud. Uh, I, had, I was trying to think when when it was, but uh, a, a while ago, forest techs are great for these sort of generating ideas. And I, I remember at breakfast one time in Rotorua with, with Christine Stone, who some of you listeners might know, is a, a very well-known well and respected remote sensing specialist among other things yep. um, and I said she, she actually had a bit of money left over from a from another project we were collaborating on and she said I've got this bit of money left over what do you think we could do with it and I said look I reckon we should be trying to see what we could do with a virtual plot because a lot of the areas that we operate in uh, we have heavy undergrowth so in the native forest we have this weed called lantana which is just dreadful to walk through and in some of our pine forests we've got really bad blackberry problems like i've heard about like blackberries bad, yeah i mean like over two meters high walls of blackberry 
And so I said, well, think of the, the safety and the cost implications if rather than sending people in to go and measure trees, we could collect enough information to be able to, to have a virtual plot and we could actually cruise that information on a screen rather than in, in the forest. And, you know, we are nearly there. So um, we've, we've started with helicopter-based um, Regal Vux 1, yep. very high point density, uh, above canopy in, in pines. Um, there's a, a couple of research projects going on at the moment, looking at um, using VR to visualize that, that plot data um, to the point where you can put a set of goggles on an on a experienced cruiser and they can, they can um, take the measurements and assess the qualities of the trees in the plot. And then with the, and that, that sort of has been good in terms of proof of concept, now with the, the uh, access to the higher point cloud information from um, things like the, the hover map sensors, then the quality of the point cloud goes up a notch. Um, still looking at this sort of the uh, visualization aspect of it, it, it looks like we'd be able to sort of identify forks and you know, upper crown features yep. that, that we couldn't actually really see before. So then you combine that with um, high resolution aerial um, LIDAR, um, individual uh, tree detection and crown detection. Um, the the, the ground-based ground resolution, so, uh, and the ability to navigate um, Sub, sub canopy, you know, if you can get that sub canopy sub yep. meter, then you can start doing things at the tree level. And yep. in fact, another thing that we've been looking at, and I won't, won't go into the detail of it because we're running out of time, yep. but uh, if, you, if you look at some mechanised planting, and we've done, we've done one trial already and we're looking to do a sort of a, a more of an operational trial perhaps next year, but mechanised planting of, of plantation trees you can accurately locate where each individual tree is planted. Absolutely. So you start off with a map. And you know where the trees are. Then you can, whether you're flying it with, with um, uh, aerial LIDAR, whether you're using ground-based LIDAR, also you know, photogrammetric point clouds, yep. you, know, you can do amazing stuff. Like that. If you can track individual trees and then sort of the 10-year time frame, um, Another thing that we've been chipping away at, or research have been chipping away at, I just have ideas, um, is can we, can we combine sensors on machinery, machinery that's operating in the forest that can uh, inform the operators, so during harvesting operations. So you might have, if you think about, I know exactly where the tree was planted. I know from my aerial um, LIDAR capture and plot imputation, where each individual tree is and what sort of volume to expect. I've got my sub-meter, sub-canopy uh, GNSS working so that plus of, of we've got, you know, obviously you've got to work out where's where's the, the antenna compared to the head on the, at the end of the boom. Yep. But that's just, if I've got an iPhone that's got an accelerometer in it, then I'm sure someone can work out where the head is relative to the antenna. Then you can say, okay, I know I'm at this tree. What do I already know about this tree? Add to that additional information from sensors on the, from the machines that are actually scanning ahead and looking particularly in that upper crown. So where you've got branching, branching and sweep are the two, two yep. biggest write downs for your value. So if you can get information and, you know, for the for the operator in the harvesting machine, they, they often can't see that. So they're just going to cut it. They'll try and optimise it. But in terms of adding value, if you can combine all that information and process it fast enough yep. that you can inform the operator, yep. you know, better value recovery. And if yeah, you can do it cool. remotely, then better safety outcomes as well. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, you're, you're tapping on your processing at edge, right? Uh, a lot of that yep. data... Doing yep. that work when there's no connectivity, uh, you're dancing around real-time communication, you know, with the Starlinks and all the other yep. uh, 
options, right? And, and basically like that digital twin of that force, like there's other sectors, smart cities and whatnot. Yep. You know, I think yep. we will see that smart, uh, that smart uh, force uh, come in. So how, so I, again, as I said, I'm sure our listeners are like, holy crap, it's like, like, who is this guy? And like, you know, and like, uh, and, and as I said, love chatting, but you're always so humble. It's like, oh, you know, I research. I'm like, uh, I know you well enough from the, the years, my friend. Uh, so people who want to reach out to you to, to talk more, learn more, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Email, are you a LinkedIn guy? Are you a Facebook, yeah, so I'm on, Instagram? I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and, and then just email me at Forestry Corporation. So Mike.Sutton at fcnsw.com.au. Very cool, very cool. And uh, yeah, so for our listeners, anyone who wants to reach out to Mike, highly uh, encourage you to do that. You'll have these great conversations. I love every single one of them. I do wish we were able to do it in person. You know, it's been several years, which we uh, we connected and we always have fun uh, bantering back and forth. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> yes, one day, yeah, absolutely. So, so hey, thanks very much for agreeing to, to do this. I uh, really appreciate your time. I'm hoping, you know, your lockdown kind of breaks, you're entering summer and, and things will open up and you'll be able to get out and enjoy things and, uh, and be safe. But thanks so much for joining uh, the Digital Forester podcast. That's been great, Kevin. And it's a really good idea and well done on setting it up. Awesome. Good stuff. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye.